following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 1030, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. I have a, a friend named Don, and he is a, a, as a, as a chef, he's a hobbyist chef. He likes to cook things. He's a gourmet and he grows his own like spices and herbs, and especially he likes to grow hot peppers. And I didn't realize a lot about hot peppers. I like spicy foods, but there's a lot I did not know about hot peppers. I thought like the heat behind a pepper was purely subjective. Like, oh, this tastes a little hotter than this, but there's a whole science behind it, and they can actually scientifically determine and compare the hotness of one pepper to another. And there's actually a scale called the Scoville Heat Scale. And they sign a numerical value to how hot a pepper is. So let me give you some examples. Like your basic bell pepper, just a regular old green pepper, has no heat, so that is a zero on the Scoville scale, okay? But let's just turn it up just a little bit like a, a pepperoncini. These are those little peppers that are in the pizza box when you order pizza. Now some of you are saying, I'm already out, that's too hot for me, I can't handle it. Anyone say, I, I can't, can't even handle a pepperoncini? There's several of you. We won't make fun of you, but you're kind of a wimp. Okay. <laughs> the pepperoncini is a 500 on the Scoville heat scale. That's not a lot. Like, let me compare that to you. Like, Tabasco sauce. Any people like Tabasco sauce here? Like, the red Tabasco sauce? Several of you. I want you to think of this, not stirring it into your chili, but like putting it on a spoon and putting it in your mouth, Okay. The, the Tabasco sauce, I mean, that, that's some heat. That's up to 3,750, 3,700, we'll say, on the Scoville heat scale. A jalapeno, like taking a, a bite of a fresh jalapeno, that's hot. That's up to 5,000 on the Scoville heat scale, okay? But we're not really, we haven't even gotten to like hot peppers yet. Because take, for example, like a cayenne pepper, <laughs> I'm not talking about like the ground up powder that you cook with. I'm saying you pick a cayenne pepper and bite into it. That is 50,000 on the Scoville heat scale. But we still haven't gotten to really hot peppers. Has anyone ever heard of a Scotch bonnet pepper? Okay, that is a <laughs> it's causing a spiritual movement in here, okay? And it will if you eat it, okay? <laughs> the Scotch bonnet pepper is 350,000 on the Scoville heat unit scale. Now, when I started talking about the Scoville heat units, you didn't think this was going to be interesting. <laughs> but now we're talking about Scotch bonnet peppers, okay? Now, someone once told me the Scotch bonnet is the hot, one of the hottest peppers in the world. That is not even close to true. Let me introduce you to this pepper right here, okay? This pepper is, is, I mean, that looks like an ordinary little chili pepper. I mean, what's so bad about this? This is called a ghost pepper. Why, you wonder? Because you turn into one if you eat it. If you want to try a ghost pepper, I recommend being in the car with someone driving you to the hospital while you take a bite. On the Scoville heat unit, the ghost pepper can get over 1 million on the Scoville heat unit. 
But that's not even close to the hottest pepper. Check out this pepper right here, okay? That just looks angry, that pepper. <laughs> that, is, that is called a scorpion pepper. Why would you eat something called a scorpion pepper? This can be almost twice as hot as a ghost pepper, almost two million on the Scoville heat scale. But the hottest pepper known to man currently is called a Carolina Reaper. Here's what it looks like. If you want to know what the vegetable form of pure evil is, that is it, okay? The Carolina Reaper can be up to 2.2 million on the Scoville heat unit scale. Now, if you've lost track of all the numbers, let me put this in perspective. Eating this pepper is 600 times hotter than red Tabasco sauce. That didn't move you. So let me tell you this. If you're carrying pepper spray with you, on the Scoville heat unit scale, it would be better to drink the pepper spray <laughs> than to eat a Carolina Reaper. Okay, now hang with me on all of this pepper discussion for a second, okay? We're talking about faith and logic, and right off the bat, before we get into a passage of Scripture, I want to tell you what's underneath this passage, and I want, you to, I want to start by telling you a story that recently happened to me. Rebecca and I were out having dinner together, my wife Rebecca and I, and um, there was a, an, an entree that I ordered that had hot cherry peppers in it. And I don't really know what that means. I was not familiar with the Scoville heat unit scale at this point. And so I said, okay, ask the server. This is a complete stranger. I've never been to this restaurant before. And I said, how hot is it? Like, is it like really hot or is it like edible or does it have like a kick? And they said, it's not super hot. You can handle it. It's just got a little kick to it. So I ordered it. And the person was right. It wasn't too bad. It had some heat, but it wasn't too bad. But really what I did was I went off of what this complete stranger told me. I'm not back in the kitchen watching them prepare it. I really don't have any idea what they've put in it. For all I know, they're going to slip a ghost pepper into this entree. I completely went on faith based on what this person told me. Now, let me run another scenario with you, another faith scenario. Suppose I go over to my friend Don's house, and Don is showing me all of his peppers. Recently, Don told me, this is how I know about some of these peppers, Don actually grows ghost peppers, scorpion peppers, and recently gleefully told me he purchased some seeds for Carolina Reaper peppers. And I'm like, dude, like, are you a terrorist? I mean, why do you need these peppers, okay? And so he says... He says, no, I just, I like to, to cook with them and things like that. So imagine I'm walking through his garden and he's showing me, this is the ghost pepper, the scorpion pepper. And then he gets to, he says, this is where I planted the Carolina Reaper. And then and he gets to another pepper. And imagine he says, and he picks it off and he hands it, says, this is really good. You can try this. Now that's a whole nother level of faith, isn't it? And I, I kind of trust Don, Okay. But I'd probably be like, okay, I believe you, but you're going to have to take a bite of that first, right? Now, I want you to think, these are two faith steps, interestingly, one with someone I know, one with a complete stranger. But here's why I draw your attention to these scenarios. Watch what's happening underneath, subconsciously under the surface. I'm calculating, without even realizing it, I'm calculating some odds. 
at the restaurant. Let's be honest, it's pretty unrealistic that they're going to serve a scorpion pepper in a dish. Why? First of all, the server works on tips. <laughs> they want to keep me happy. Okay, second of all, this restaurant, they don't want a lawsuit against them because my face melted when I ate that entree. Okay, so in all honesty, it's pretty unrealistic that it's going to be so hot that it's inedible. So yes, it was a faith step. I didn't see what, how they made it, but it's a pretty logical step, but it still took a little faith. Now the situation with my buddy Don, that's different. Because walking through the garden, the, calculating the odds, I mean, what if he forgot what this, this pepper was? I mean, what if accidentally the wind blew some seeds and he didn't realize it was really a scorpion pepper? Or what if he just got confused and he forgot? I mean, there's a lot more underneath that it's a, more highly likely that this is going to be a really, really hot pepper. It's both are a step of faith, but look at what's operating underneath. Logic. Often we think of faith and logic, and we're told they're two separate poles. We're told that logic stands completely on facts and on provable evidence, and it's all rational scientific thinking, no faith. And we're told, on the other hand, typically when people talk about faith, what they really are talking about is complete blind faith without any evidence of all, at all. And rarely is faith have no evidence at all, and, and rarely does logic require no faith at all. The way those two actually work together, they're not poles. They actually work together. Logic is always building the evidence, laying the foundation, building up to where then we have to take a leap of faith. Think of every, when you're in your science classes, every scientific experiment that you've ever read about. You believe them to be true because you say, well, look at the logic. But you weren't there to do the experiment. So you're actually, yes, there's great logic, but there is a point that you took it on faith that that experiment was actually done. All logic in the end will almost always include some amount of faith. And all faith is usually undergirded with some measure of logic. They work together. Now here's what we intend to do through this series for the next several weeks. We want to take the interplay of these two. You don't have to choose between the two. The interplay for the way these two work out is logic builds up to a point where we take a leap of faith. And so we're going to take some of these questions that are often in our modern, more scientific, logical minds, and we're going to address, as honestly as we can, some of these tough questions that are posed against what Christians believe. And to do that, we're going to go through the beginning part of a book called Romans. And in the New Testament, the author who's writing this letter to these Christians and non-Christians in this church context in Rome He's writing to them and he's building this argument and we're going to follow pieces of this argument to show how logic is undergirding our faith. Now, I want to start today, this series, we're going to start the series today with Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, go to Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. Here's what it says. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God 
for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now watch how he defines the gospel. This is dense, but hang with it. For in it, the gospel, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by, what's the word there? The righteous shall live by faith. This is right here, this is basically the thesis statement for the entire book of Romans. It's exposing what is all throughout the New Testament, what the heartbeat of the gospel is. And what he's saying is he's saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel. He's starting off in this book, I am not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel meaning that good news of the story of Jesus and what he accomplished when he lived, died, and rose from the dead, what he accomplished for humanity, that story, which is good news for everyone, I am not ashamed of that story. And then he defines it like this, and it's very interesting. He talks about this concept of righteousness. Now, of all like churchy Bible words, righteousness, that word is like right up at the top, okay? So think about this word righteousness. It's not hard to understand what that means. It basically means rightness before God. So in other words, it's I have good right standing. If someone is righteous, they have good right standing before God. They're acceptable before God. And every religion, whether they use the word righteousness or not, Every religion has their standard of what puts you in right standing before God. It's their moral code, their worship practices, do this, don't do this, pray this way, sing this way, chant this way, say these words. They have, in every religion, their code for how you achieve right standing before God, how you achieve righteousness. Sometimes among religions, these are very, very different. Sometimes they're very similar. So let's talk about one that's very, very different. There's a religion in India called Jainism. And in this religion, the monks, there's these men that are monks and they're ascetics, which means that they reject all worldly comfort. They're trying to remove themselves completely from the world to the point where these Jainist monks shed their clothing. They're actually nudists because they do not want to have any clothing to associate themselves with the world. Furthermore, what they do is they're, they're so committed to, their, to what they believe that any time they eat, they have someone sit next to them and they sort through every particle of their food and hand them little pieces at a time. And they do that to make sure there's not accidentally any insect that they might kill by eating it. They're trying to protect all life. So even accidentally eating a maggot or eating a fly or something like that breaks their code. That's their pretty unique code for how to have right standing before God. There's at other places, there's things that are pretty similar. So take Confucius, for example. Confucius once said these words. He said, um, don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. Does that sound familiar? Jesus said the same truth in the inverse. He said, proactively do for others what you would want them to do for you. Very similar. So across religions, 
Each religion has their list of what it means to look like right standing. They have their list of how you live righteously to achieve right standing before God. But look what Paul said. I want you for a second to forget whatever you've heard about Christianity. What some Christian you know has said, what you heard in Sunday school or in religious school, or, or just put that on the shelf for a second. Because here's what Paul says. He says, the righteous shall live by a moral code, some worship practices, praying and Bible reading and going to church and giving to the poor. I mean, what did he say? The righteous shall live by faith. There's something utterly unique about the gospel that is different among all other religions. The gospel is in the message of the New Testament is not laying out another moral system and list of worship practices to achieve righteousness. It's saying you could never achieve righteousness, right standing before God. God is too holy and too perfect. The only way to achieve right standing is through faith. Faith in what? Faith that God himself enters into his creation in the form of a man. Jesus, God in the flesh. Jesus taught, he healed, he worked miracles, but ultimately he came to surrender his life to be killed. He was killed, on, executed, crucified on a cross, and on the third day he rose again from the dead. And his followers, not just the disciples, but hundreds of followers say, we saw him dead and then we saw him alive. In fact, there are books here in the Bible that you can hear, they're writing to this first century people and say, look, if you question if he rose from the dead, I can give you a list of hundreds of eyewitnesses that can tell you they saw him alive. All of that, why did Jesus die? He said, I am here to die to pay for your unrighteousness. I am going to pay for all of your sins so that you're completely forgiven, so when God looks at you, he doesn't see your unrighteousness. He doesn't see the things of that make you fall short of right standing. All of that has been placed on Jesus. All he sees is Jesus has washed you clean, leaving you righteous in right standing with God. The gospel is by faith that Jesus made you righteous. Not about what you do, but, what, but about what he did. Paul says this, though. I'm not ashamed of that story. Now, why, why would Paul be ashamed? Like, why would he be embarrassed of that story? See, there's something about that gospel message, a message of faith, that historically the world rejects. It doesn't want faith. It doesn't like faith. Faith is intangible. Faith can't be proven to me. Faith can't be controlled. It's, it's outside of my control. It's saying there's something beyond what I can understand. Faith makes us uncomfortable. And so generation after generation, there's a pattern through history, rejects, pushes back, and is sometimes even hostile to the idea of faith. Let me give you an example. The first generation of Christians, do you know what they were accused of being, first generation Christians? Atheists. They would say, these atheists, we've got to put them to death. They're atheists. Why would they think Christians are atheists? Because all around in the society around them, they all had physical marble or gold statues that were their gods. 
And Christians would say, no, there's not all these gods. There's one God, but he's invisible. And so they looked and said, where's your God? I can't see him. I can't touch him. And said, so you must not really have a God. You're an atheist. And they'd be persecuted for that. In the same way, every generation, faith makes humanity uncomfortable. And even in modern day, in modern day time, the idea of faith is pushed against. And sometimes people of faith are made to be ashamed that they're people of faith. Saying things like, wait a minute, you're telling me you believe, Christian, you're saying you believe something that happened 2,000 years ago? You weren't there? How do you really know that was true? And it's not just that you believe. I mean, it's pretty crazy some of the things that are supposedly true from 2,000 years ago that you weren't there. And how do you know, like, how do you know what you believe from 2,000 years ago actually happened? Like, how can you actually know that was there? And it's not just that you choose to believe it, Christian. I mean, you're basing some significant parts of your life. I mean, this is how you determine how you spend your time, your money, your relationships, your sexuality. I mean, you're, you're following this whole system that's based on a story that happened 2,000 years ago that you weren't even there. Where's the evidence? Where's the logic? And so sometimes that's pushed against because faith can make us uncomfortable. So here's how we're going to start off this this series, is to, to show how this story about Jesus contained here in the Bible, especially in the New Testament and especially in the four Gospels. How do we know? What's the logic underneath our faith in this story that bolsters our faith? So I want to address three specific questions. First is this. What if the story is a lie? Like what if they just made it up? How do we know it's not a conspiracy? Second question, um, what if the story is corrupted? How do we know that the story that they originally wrote down is what we're reading? I mean, hasn't it been like the game of telephone for 2,000 years? I mean, couldn't it have been corrupted for over 2,000 years? How do we know that this is what they originally believed? And here's the third one. What if the story is just too far-fetched? Like, there's just too many things in the story that I just, I, I can't believe. It's just too, too crazy, too weird, too bizarre for me to believe. Let's take one of these at a time. Here's the first one. What if the story is a lie? There's a guy by the name of uh, Chuck Colson, and you may have heard of him. He was a senior aide to the White House during the Watergate scandal. And in fact, he was imprisoned for his involvement in Watergate. And he eventually comes to Christ after all of that. And when he gets out of prison, there's something about his experience in the Watergate scandal that informs his Christian belief. And he says it like this. He said, the 10 of us involved in this scandal were trying to hide secrets and perpetuate a lie. And the 10 of us were the 10 most powerful men in the United States. He said, and arguably, I mean, you could argue if the 10 most powerful men in the United States, they're 10 of the most powerful men in the world. He says, the things that we had, we had, you know, intelligence and experience and education and position and power. We had almost anything we needed at our disposal. And the 10 of us tried to keep this under wraps and didn't last two weeks. With everything at our disposal. In the end, people are going to do whatever it takes to save their skin. He said, when I, from that experience, he said, to, he said to me, it is just completely implausible that 11 disciples of Jesus, no education, no position, no power, 
almost nothing at their fingertips could maintain a, if what they would have known to be a lie for their entire lifetime. I mean, that's excluding all the other hundreds of people that saw Jesus alive. Just those 11. How could they maintain that lie? Think about it. They are not just standing firm on what they believe. These are things they witnessed. They know whether it's true or whether it's false. And here's what happened with, with each, every single one of them. Well, maybe they gained some kind of glory from it. If you read the accounts, it is very inglorious of those 11. Repeatedly, Jesus is saying, this is what's going to happen. They chose not to believe it. And repeatedly, Jesus is the only one that looks good. And they look very foolish. They got no glory. They got nothing from world, of worldly goods from this. In fact, they lost everything because of this. And they didn't just accidentally lose it. Like they didn't set out, well, maybe this will make us rich. And then they lost everything. They went out knowing and proclaiming, Jesus said, we've got to surrender everything to preach this message. And they did. Every single one of just those 11, and there were many more in the same, same boat, every single one of these 11 were beaten or tortured. And almost all of them, in the end, were executed for what they believed. Now, when I say executed, here's what I mean. Beheaded. Some of the 11 were beheaded. Some were taken outside of the city and stoned with large rocks until they were dead. Some were crucified. One was crucified upside down. One was flayed to death, which what that means is they tie you to a stake and whip chunks of your flesh off of your body until you die. And all of them went to their grave, not one of them recanting or cracking about what they believed. Remember, these were eyewitnesses. So they know whether it's true or false. People die for what they believe all the time. But no one dies for what they know is a lie. Compare this to the, think about it like this. Let's take another part of history. Alexander the Great what you've seen in documentaries or learned in history class, almost everything we know about Alexander the Great comes from five historical sources. And of these historical sources, scholars are frustrated because they differ widely because they're motivated differently. Why? Because Alexander the Great, he had a, a, a historian that followed, or followed him around and they called him the, the minister of propaganda. And he had a specific agenda that he wanted this guy to fulfill and one day just has him executed because he didn't bow to Alexander. Okay, so the people who wrote about Alexander, these five sources, they were motivated to write either for or against Alexander to save their lives. That is different and that is far different than what the disciples who wrote about Jesus. They wrote despite the fact that they were going to be tortured or killed for what they wrote. At very least, you look historically and you have to logically say, whether or not is true is up for debate. But what's not really up for debate, they believed what they wrote. They died for it. Not a conspiracy. They did not believe it was not a lie. They saw it. They believed what they wrote. But here's the second question. Okay, so what if what they wrote got corrupted all these years? I mean, that was 2,000 years ago. 
I mean, how do I know it hasn't been changed all these years ago? Well, here's how it works. I want you to think in terms of, this is how historians know if what we're reading today is what was originally written. It depends on how many ancient manuscripts you find of an ancient document. So I'll pull it up here on the screen. Think about Plato, for example. So if you've heard, studied, or read about Plato, these ancient texts, um, historians have seven ancient manuscripts about Plato. So if you have seven that you find, you can compare these old ancient texts. If they align, you're like, okay, that's pretty solid. What we have today has to be true. You don't go into philosophy class and they say, this may or may not have been what Plato wrote. They take it as this is what Plato wrote. Now, there are some ancient texts that have a lot more. So for example, I have this book here, The Iliad. Um, anyone um, read The Iliad like in high school or college, okay? Some of you are half-hearted because you're like, well, I was assigned The Iliad, okay? The Iliad actually has a whole lot of ancient manuscripts, a ton by historical standards. The Iliad, they've found 643 ancient texts that's, that if they align, you're like, okay, I mean, that's got to be what Homer actually wrote. Like, I don't question that this has gotten corrupt. We have hundreds of ancient texts to compare it to. This, the Iliad, is the second most historically attributed to ancient text. The first, by a long shot, is the New Testament. They, um, historians, scholars, archaeologists, they have found 5,366 ancient Greek manuscripts attributing throughout ancient history that what you're reading today is what was originally written. And that's just ancient Greek. If you include other ancient languages like Latin, it goes significantly higher almost 25,000 ancient manuscripts that say the New Testament is what was originally written. By historical standards, there is nothing that even comes close to comparing to the historical reliability of the New Testament. Let's go back to Alexander the Great for a second. Those five sources that they base what we know Alexander the Great on, the closest written to when Alexander was alive was 300 years later. And he was basing it on eyewitness testimony that we don't even have anymore, so we're taking him at his word. 300 years later, that's the oldest, but that's not even what historians say is the most reliable. The most reliable historical source, and I'm talking about, talking about battle tactics, I mean details of his life. The most, historical, the, the most historically reliable source for Alexander the Great was written 500 years after he was alive. This is the New Testament written by eyewitnesses or people who interviewed eyewitnesses in that first generation. And there's more historical evidence that what was actually written is what is written um, today more reliable than any other ancient text. Was it a lie? Couldn't have been a lie. They, they would not have torturously died and lost everything for a lie. They believed it. Is what they wrote what we have today? If you don't believe that, you really probably have to question everything you know from ancient history. What was written by other historical standards, it blows it out of the water, the New Testament. What was written is, is actually what we have today. And here's the third thing. Okay, I hear you. But there's just some things in the Bible that are just so crazy. I, I just don't know if I can believe it. So you've proved that they believed it and you proved that they wrote it. 
But I'm not sure I believe it yet to be true. Because there's some crazy things. I mean, Jesus, like, healing people and turning water to wine. I mean, that story about that guy Jonah, I mean, getting swallowed by a whale. I mean, that's crazy. Like, there's all these miracles in there that I read, and I struggle with that. And you say, like, I've never witnessed anything like that. I mean, how do I know that those things are true? And if you say that, man, it's understandable that you're wrestling with some of the supernatural elements that are in the Bible. But let me pose this question. I wonder if the real question is not, are miracles possible? I wonder if the real question, logically speaking, goes back to this question. Is there a higher supernatural being? If you believe in any form of higher supernatural being, any form of being that created, any form of God, or you believe in God itself, then logically speaking, purely logically, miracles are then possible. Because if there's a supernatural being, then he could logically reach into the natural realm and make miracles happen. So it really comes down to whether you believe in a God or not. If you believe in a God, then miracles are logically possible. I mean, if there's a God, then he could easily make Jonah swallowed by a whale. He just has a whale swallow him. He can do that with nature. It could have, he could have Jonah swallowed by a guppy if he wanted to. If there's a God, logically possible, miracles are logically possible. Christian, here's what I want to say to bolster your faith. I want to talk about the logic underneath to bolster your faith so you are not ashamed of faith. They believed what was written. It's not a lie. Couldn't be. What they wrote is what you're reading. And what the crazy, unbelievable things like a guy rising from the dead, that boils back to whether or not you believe in a God. And if you believe in a God, all miracles are on, on, the, on the table. I mean, the Bible's not saying, oh yeah, people get swallowed by whales all the time. The Bible's saying, this is ridiculously crazy. Look what happened. It's saying, what a crazy thing that God broke into history and made a miracle happen. But it's still a step of faith, isn't it? The logic is built up, but we stand on top of that foundation in order to take a step of faith. There was a 5th century bishop. His name is Theodoret. And he said this story about Jesus and what he accomplished for us, this good news, this gospel. He described it, he says, it's a lot like a hot pepper. If you look at a, a pepper and you just touch it, it might be cool to the touch. And someone might tell you this is a hot pepper, but you can't tell until you take a bite. Here's what he said. I want you to hear it in his own words. A pepper outwardly seems to be cold, but the person who crunches it between the teeth experiences the sensation of burning fire. Here's what this message of the gospel is. It's not about just simply logical belief. You can't be logically argued into being a follower of Christ. It's going to take a leap of faith. It's more than just belief. If I'm with my friend Don in his pepper garden, and he says, this is a hot pepper, and I say, I believe you. I have not yet taken a step of faith. It's when I say, I will show you I believe you, and I crunch it between my teeth. 
It's the same with the gospel. You may hear this and you're like, okay, makes sense. I see how this whole message makes sense. But it's until you take a bite and crunch it between your teeth that it will light you on fire. The message of the gospel, this is not a call to be more fervent morally. It's not a call necessarily to be more religious. It's a call to faith. It's a simple step that you take at any time where you stop and say, okay, I believe, and here's how I'm going to take a bite. I'm going to hand you my life, Jesus, and say, I believe you have forgiven me once and for all, and in light of that, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to take that step. That's the call today. It's not to argue, in, argue you in logically. It's to show you the logic, but only to bolster a step of faith, to crunch it between your teeth. And you might be here and say, look, I, I'm going through a lot. I've got a new year. There's things I want different. I like the idea of God. I like the idea of Jesus. I like what you're saying. That he's offering me forgiveness. I like that. I want, I just don't have all of my questions answered yet. That's okay. But I want you to know you can still take a step of faith today. And you can still say, all right, Jesus, I don't have all the answers, but I'm making the leap. Is that you today? I want to lead you in a prayer. Would you all just bow your heads and close your eyes with me for a second? Today, if you're here saying, look, I, I think I want to take that step. I think I'm ready to just, I don't have all the answers, but I'm ready to just, I want to just put my faith in Jesus. I want to know once and for all that I'm saved, that I'm made right with God permanently. I just want to know that I'm saved. If that's you, you can just put your faith in Jesus with a simple prayer. And I want to lead you in that prayer. If that's you, then right there in your seat, just silently in your heart, just simply pray these words just between you and God. Just silently say, God, thank you for wanting to save me. Thank you for having a story of Jesus who took my punishment. Thank you for offering me forgiveness. I'm ready to take that step and follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.